0: To Objection to the rule here, Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Reese Robinson, and I am on air today with my co hosts, Emily and Jasmine, and a special guest, Miss Darlene McDay. How are we doing today, ladies? Very good, thank you.
1: Thank you for joining us, Darlene. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm happy to have you here. And, um, I'm doing pretty good. I do, I did want to clarify one thing though, um, that last week was, um, pretty intense for me. I don't know if any of you could tell, but um, uh, a lot was going on with Israel and with anti-Semitism. that's obviously still going on now. but um, Jasmine pointed out that um, something I said came off as in a way I did not intend. So I just wanted to take a moment to clarify that. Um, what I said was anti-Semitism is one of the only things where if someone called you out called you that, You'd say you're making that up, and I don't think you're right. And then I um, compared it to other marginalized communities. Um, and I did not mean to say that other communities don't, um, other marginalized communities don't face pushback, um, don't don't face people who dehumanize them, and don't take their oppression seriously. Um, I think I was probably talking with some shorthand. Um, because it's it's just so clear to me and to many other Jewish people. But um, baked into anti-Semitism is the stereotype that Jews are rich and powerful. And with that comes the paradox that, well, if you're rich and powerful, then you can't be oppressed. Um, and unfortunately, that creates a very, um, very difficult way to navigate the world where all it's it's that added layer of people having a reason to not take you and your um, oppression seriously so i i didn't mean to um to in some way imply that other communities do not face oppression and very serious oppression and i just wanted to apologize and clarify if it came off that way at all and thank you for listening
0: Awesome. And thank you for that, Emily. I appreciate it. I know sometimes our con- well, every time our conversations get very passionate on this show um, and we definitely intend to speak for the voiceless, but also speak from our own standpoints and speak with a lens that provides people a, uh, a good train of thought to follow up on some of the stories. So I appreciate you coming in to say that. Um, so we are recording this episode on Thursday, May 20th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, May 23rd. Today, we'll be discussing some upcoming events and news in NYC concerning the qualified immunity bill, um, the COVID situation that is occurring right now in India, Rashida Tlaib's confrontation with Biden in Detroit, and some good news from some retired circus elephants. <laughs> so we're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with our special guest, Ms. Darlene McDay. Thank you so much for being here with us today. How are you?
2: Thank you for having me. I'm doing okay. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Uh, All right. I know there's a lot going on. Um, So just to bring in this story, a couple of weeks ago, I did a recap of the qualified immunity uh, bill that is currently up um, in the in the assembly to be discussed and hopefully passed before they go into recess for the summer. So Darlene is here to talk to us a little bit today about her involvement and just clarify some things for our listeners concerning it. So why don't you just begin Darlene to uh, today, just talking about a little bit about the organizations that you are involved with that brought you to the show, and then maybe clearing up some um, maybe misconceptions or any confusion we may have about what qualified immunity really means
2: okay thank you very much um yes the organization that i'm with is called end qi that's e-n-d q-i-n-y um, and i got involved with this organization a short time ago actually it's a grassroots organization based in new york city and we're focused on bringing an end to qualified immunity um, for those of people that don't know what qualified immunity is Uh, It's basically a legal doctrine that was made up by the Supreme Court back in 1967, which shields government officials, including police and correction officers, from any accountability. Um, Back then in 67, the Supreme Court decided that even if a government official violated someone's constitutional rights, but there was no clearly established law, that that officer or that uh, corrections officer or government official could not be held accountable civilly. So this has nothing to do with criminal charges, but we all know that most of the time these government officials don't face criminal charges. This is all about civil liability. And one of the misconceptions people have is a lot of times when they see that someone has been abused by the police or, or something like that, They see a settlement and a settlement does not lead to clearly established law. So that's very important here, because if there is no clearly established law and the case actually goes to court, then that officer can get qualified immunity and there will be no accountability.
0: Oh, my gosh. And, you know, the reason I brought this up, Darlene, on the show is this is like the really core Of us really changing the tide for police brutality and just um, injustice uh, with law enforcement or government officials. A a lot of times we don't really understand how to move the needle, but this is a really important issue to me because this will definitely make a huge impact on how these cases are handled in the future. So definitely great to hear that you are doing some work. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you got involved with the organization?
2: Sure. Um, There's a national campaign actually sponsored by Ben and Jerry, the ice cream makers, and I originally contacted their organization because I didn't really see anything going on in New York um, that I could find, and, you know, of course, living in New York, that's very important to me. We see it on the national level, and that's part of the George Floyd and Policing Act that is a law of contention right now in Congress, Um, and their sticking point is actually qualified immunity. So other parts of the bill that they're looking at in Congress could possibly pass, but they're stuck on this qualified immunity issue. So it's extremely important. So when I contacted the national campaign, they put me in touch with these folks in New York City, um, and I reached out to them and they welcomed me with open arms. So that's how I got involved.
0: Well, rightfully so. Um, So today we are welcoming you to the show, one, because of your involvement, but two, it's really important to me that our listeners hear your story. Um, When I met Darlene the other day, we had a thorough conversation about her experience that really touched my heart. Um, I've heard a story like this before, and I'm sure you have too. So I'm just going to give you a few minutes, Darlene. Can you please tell our listeners uh, what happened to you and your family that has really driven you to work hard for this initiative?
2: Yes. So qualified immunity, um, most people probably don't know what it is, maybe have never heard of it. I found that uh, very much um, recently when I started reaching out to people. Um, They'd never even heard of it. And unfortunately, I am touched by qualified immunity firsthand. My son, his name was Dante. He was 22 years old. He was incarcerated up in Buffalo, New York, in a facility called Wendy Correctional Facility. While he was there, he had gotten assaulted by several officers. And they disfigured his face. He ended up totally disfigured. He was unrecognizable after what they did to him after they abused him. Um, You know, as a mother losing my son, I, I, you know... I live with this every day. It's it's extremely painful, as you can imagine. Um, but in trying to find some sort of justice, if we even can call it that, we filed a federal suit in 2020 of um, just last year. Um, this actually happened in 2017. The officers were found by the OSI, that's the Office of Special Investigation that investigates them. They were found to have abused my son and lied and falsified documents. But even though we have that information, it still took me three years to find a lawyer to take my case and thank God I did. But now that we filed the federal case, the officers are using qualified immunity as a defense. And if they're granted qualified immunity, my whole case could be thrown out just for that simple fact. Even though their own Office of Special Investigations has found that they did abuse my son and they falsified documents, the Department of Corrections is unable to fire the officers because of the powerful union that they have. And there may be no justice for my son So people often don't realize how this could affect them. You know, a simple traffic stop could very easily, easily escalate. Next thing you know, you're hurt or possibly even dead. God forbid you're dead. When your family tries to then fight for justice, the officers are going to claim qualified immunity. And if there's not clearly established law, nothing will happen to them. So this is so important for people to understand that it does affect everyone. It doesn't matter if you're a man, woman, child, if you're black, white, yellow, purple, brown, it does not matter what you are. This is so important and can affect anyone.
0: Wow. Well, let me just offer you again my condolences for what happened with your son, I know this, I can't even imagine um, the amount of strength that you have had to endure to be dealing with this shit for like three or four years now to just get an answer whether or not these cops will be tried for what they did. Um, And I just want to just make a clear statement to everyone that the immense amount of pressure that Darlene has had to deal with from local government, the runaround that she has had to deal with to get answers, even all the way up to seeing her son, um, at the funeral, unrecognizable because of what happened to him, is is insane. And I have never really met anyone with your strength and your tenacity. So I just want you to know that I'm praying for you and rooting for you, and I will do everything that I can to support you in this way. So I just wanted to make sure I put that out there because I know there's a lot of families that have been hurt uh, by police violence, and it you know when it's something someone you know when it gets that close to home, it becomes. So real that you can breathe it and touch it, and you live uh, trying to work through these these issues in your life every day when you really never truly get healing. So I just wanted to put that out there for you and let you know that um, you have our support here on OTR.
2: Thank you so much, Teresa. I mean, yeah, like you said, um, you know, it's it so much emotion. I've been going through it for four years, nearly four years now. Um, Dante was my only child. I mean, not that one could replace another. That could never happen. But he was my only child. And, you know, I will never, never get over what happened to him or seeing him. Seeing him at his funeral and not being able to talk to him or to recognize him. It's it's just, but having the support and doing this advocacy and feeling like I have a voice and I could make a real change in the world gives me strength. And I've met so many amazing people through this process that are so supportive. And that's how I go on.
0: Yeah, I can totally understand that. And You know, again, we definitely support you. Just so our listeners know, uh, Darlene is a nurse. She's a nurse practitioner. Uh, Her mother is a lawyer. She is a person who gives every day to transform humanity. Um, And she is a mother and she's an advocate because she has no choice. So when it comes to things like this, when it comes to this specific issue, we need to be vigilant. We need to stand up. We need to share um, the knowledge, share this episode and definitely do as much as we can to push the local leadership as well as the federal leadership to make this really the change that we need to have some something happen in this fight against police brutality. So I know, Darlene, you've been working very closely for an event that is happening tomorrow. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that?
2: Absolutely. Um, tomorrow, which is May 21st. We will be in Foley Square. Um, Several organizations are joining in collaboration with um, NQINY. Um, It's amazing how many organizations are coming to support us. So that is Friday, tomorrow, May 21st. Then on Monday, May 23rd, there is another event in Albany um, to support these bills. And on Tuesday, there is another event in Rochester. Um, That's the 25th, I believe. So, yes. So, tomorrow, May 21st in New York City. Monday, May 24th. I made a mistake there. So, Monday is May 24th, and that's in Albany. And then finally, Tuesday in Rochester, that's... Of an event, um, May, May 25th, 25th. Yeah. And that is actually the, um, the anniversary of the death of George
0: Floyd. Okay. So we will be sharing the information, um, for the event in Folly Square, uh, tomorrow. I will be there um, in support of you and, and y, NQINY, as well as um, from my other organization, Liberated Production, to really be a part of some real social change. Please find out about this information, share it with everyone you know, and make this something that we all work very hard to do. Um, Darlene, can you tell our listeners how to follow um, either NQINY or yourself, or just where they can get more information about qualified immunity?
2: Absolutely. Um... On Twitter or Instagram, it's at endqiny. That's at E-N-D-Q-I-N-Y. You can follow us on both Twitter and Instagram. Um, There you can find out information. Please reach out to us. We are, you know... Happy to take any questions to give any information. You know, we're really looking to educate the public at tomorrow's event. We're going to have attorneys explaining qualified immunity legislators there in support of these bills. The bill in the Senate is S1991. And in the assembly is A4331. And not only does it end qualified immunity, but there is also information in there that enables people to be able to get lawyers. As I said, it took me three years to be able to find an attorney to take my case. And especially in my case, since it was in a correctional facility with no cameras, imagine how difficult that was to prove to an attorney that this case was worthwhile. I myself um, just really sent in foil requests and did all kinds of investigation on my own. Um, but I often say people don't have the ability, they're, they don't know how to do certain things. Maybe they don't have the education. Maybe they don't have the money. It cost me over $20,000 to have investigators get get interviews with the other incarcerated individuals that were willing to step up because that often does not happen, but these people were willing to step up to support me and to help me find out what happened to my son. So um, I greatly appreciate that, but unfortunately a lot of people don't have that opportunity. So we really wanna just help everyone get the information. As I said, there is we keep on calling for police accountability. And they cannot have accountability as long as we have qualified immunity. That's why qualified immunity needs to end. And I would encourage everyone to call their senators and their assembly people and tell them that they have to pass these bills, demand that they pass these bills, bombard their office and make sure that these bills are passed.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Please, people get involved, get engaged. You know, it's been a year. uh, It's coming up on a year since the death of Brother George Floyd and the George Floyd policing act has not been made into law. We're still waiting for that. Um, We have to be mindful that because of what happened in the Chauvin case, a lot of people are kind of like, okay, we're getting somewhere. But really, that's one case out of millions Of people who have been victims to police violence. So we have to do something that actually makes a difference. And this is what it will take. It will take something as majestic as this bill and many others that will come to follow to really change the tide on how policing is done in this country. So again, I just want to thank you so much, Darlene, for being here, offer my tremendous support. I will see you tomorrow. I will be advocating for This bill and many others to be passed um, this year right now in real time so that when we go into this summer, we know that we spent this time making a difference. And I encourage everybody, if you're in New York City, if you're around, please meet us down at Folly Square tomorrow. It is important we show up. We show up for Darlene and the many other countless people who have been victims of state violence.
3: Yeah, just, um, just quickly, because this is airing on the 23rd, like tomorrow will have passed when you're listening. So um, th- the earliest you could get involved would be Monday, the 24th um, of May. So uh, we wish you luck, though, tomorrow on the 21st with the action. And I hope you get a lot of support.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. And for more information, you can definitely check out our Facebook page. We will be posting um, information for you to follow. So we're going to go ahead and take our first music break today. The first track comes from Donny Hathaway, and it is a classic. Someday we'll all be free. We'll be right back. objection to the rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we will have Jasmine with our national news segment.
3: Okay. So this is a story that um, came out. We're recording this on um, May the 20th. And the story came out on NPR uh, two days ago on May the 18th. The title is um, Representative Tlaib pushes Biden to protect at-risk Palestinians in Middle East conflict. It was written by Alana Wise, um, so I'm going to go ahead and read the majority of um, what you can find on the site. Michigan Representative Rashida Tlaib conveyed to, President Bi- conveyed to President Biden her dissatisfaction with the United States response to the bloody conflict between Israel and Hamas that has now entered its second week, her office says. Tlaib, who is the first woman of Palestinian descent to serve in Congress, also told Biden that Palestinians must be protected, and she shared her harsh assessment of Israel's role in escalating the violence, an aid for the Congresswoman's office said in a statement. Their conversation came after Biden landed in Detroit on Tuesday, ahead of his visit to Ford's Rouge Electric Vehicle Center in nearby Dearborn, and as global pressure mounts for Israel and Hamas to call a truce in their fighting. Dearborn, Michigan is home to a sizable Arab American population, and protesters took to the streets Tuesday in the city to voice support for Palestinians. This is a quote, Palestinian human rights are not a, ba- a bargaining chip and must be protected, not negotiated, the aides said Talib expressed to Biden. The U.S. cannot continue to give the right wing Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu government billions each year to commit crimes against Palestinians. Atrocities like bombing schools cannot be tolerated, much less conducted with U.S.-supplied weapons. Um, It was reported earlier this week that the United States is conducting an arms sale to Israel worth some $735 million dollars a deal that caught several Washington lawmakers off guard and prompted calls to halt the sale until a ceasefire is reached. Congresswoman Tlaib reiterated that the status quo is enabling more killing and that the current U.S. approach of unconditional support for the Israeli government is not working and that the White House must do far more to protect Palestinian lives, dignity, and human rights, the aide said. Tlaib's remarks to the president echoed an impassioned speech she delivered on the House floor last week, in which she called to end the, quote, apartheid system and, quote, racism She she said have been exacted on Palestinians by the Israeli government. Biden, like his White House predecessors, has expressed support for Israel and its right to defend itself while encouraging Israel to protect innocent civilians. In a carefully worded statement, the White House said that when Biden spoke to Netanyahu on Monday, he, quote, expressed his support for a ceasefire and discussed U.S. engagement with Egypt and other partners towards that end. Um, and this is not in that article, but um, there has been a ceasefire um, as of the time that we're recording this. Um, and this is just a brief Summary of some of what has happened over the past 11 days uh, from the Associated Press. Um, So far, at least 230 Palestinians were killed, including 65 children, and 1,710 people wounded, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. Some 58,000 Palestinians have fled their homes. 12 people in Israel, including a five year old boy and a 16 year old girl, have also been killed. Israeli bombing has damaged over 50 schools across the territory, and six of those schools have been completely destroyed. And the attacks, um, the airborne attacks, have also damaged at least 18 hospitals and clinics um, and one healthcare facility, according to the World Health Organization. So, yeah, like I'm definitely happy that right now as of the time of us recording that there has been a ceasefire but i also wanted to say like just speaking for myself i don't speak for the show or the station but i believe that the treatment that palestinians are being subjected to in israel is not acceptable and it would not be accessible acceptable in any other part of the world towards any other group of people whether it's you know being forced from your homes, being tear gas for protesting, being forced to live in conditions where, like you don't have reliable access to clean water, uh, there's some families that have been essentially wiped out like due to being bombed. So I'm very relieved, at least for now, that the ceasefire has happened, but until like these root issues are dealt with it just seems like it will be temporary. And then in a short period of time, like there's going to be another flare up of this type of violence. So I definitely do not know like what the permanent solution would be, but I hope that one can be found like as soon as possible. Cause this, what is happening now, like it can't go on and it's not going to, it's not gonna end well if it keeps going like this. Definitely.
0: And I appreciate and agree with a lot of your sentiments. Um, Just the sheer magnitude of what has happened over the past week since we spoke about this last week is, I think, a lot bigger than many of us can even imagine. Um, And at this point, it's really not about pointing fingers. And I understand that there is a rich, deep history for many reasons. But at this point, I'm just more concerned about lives lost. And the reality of what will happen now, you know, the aftermath um, is a lot. It's a lot to pick up for everyone that lives there, regardless of, you know, what side you're on or who you identify with. Anytime there's war, there is destruction, destruction of families, destruction of faith, um, destruction of, you know, trust, public trust in one another and um, in government. And, you know, government trust is already not that great in 2021, all across the world. But right now I'm just, you know, really feeling it for the families who have been greatly affected by this fighting on both sides um, and what will happen in Palestine to recover. You know, it's, it's one thing to consider there could be international aid, but the reality is the destruction is, has made it very desolate in many areas and the recovery efforts will not nearly happen as quickly as the destruction did. So at the end of the day, it's about safety. It's about people. And I just really hope that this ceasefire leads us into some talk, some sort of resolution that will uh, provide some new foundations to be established and some help, quite honestly, for the people who have been through this destruction over the last week and forever for that matter.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, I think, Jasmine, your point. I think everyone's points. I think um that the status quo is not is beyond not working. That is it needs to be like hyperbolized, but it, it is um people are suffering. Um and things need to change. Um I, I encourage anyone to who is interested in um, activism for um, Palestinians, um, to, um, to, under, to try and do the research to understand the region and the history of the region. I know that there's a have seen a lot of stuff on social media about like, oh, it's not complicated. Like you're just deflecting, blah, blah, blah. But like, it, it is not American history over there. Right. It, I think, I think if you really want to help the people over there you can't ignore the why of how the situation came to be um and you really need to listen to the people that are are over there um and i also encourage you anyone who wants to donate money to to do your research again and i'll talk about this again at the end of the show about where that money is going and and the history of whatever organization you're donating to um across the board i really do um think that that's important as well um yeah, and um, with Rashida Talib, I I don't want to speak on behalf of the Jewish community in the United States or anything like that. Um, but like, not a fan, <laughs> um, and not not explicitly for for a couple of reasons. Um, just like I, I from she was once on like a panel about anti semitism, and there was like a, four people, and there was only one Jewish person on the panel, right? And it's just it's she clearly has a a narrative that um I think is less inclusive than um what I what I would consider actually helpful. Um, but I do believe she has um the best interests of Palestinians in mind. Um it's just important to um again being inclusive in your activism. Um and finally do you, mm-hmm. do yeah.
3: you have like suggestions of like sources that you think mm-hmm. people should look at like in particular mm-hmm. do you have things in mind like that you right. were able to direct to people to
1: yeah well so i guess it, so i i'm still learning i'm in the process of learning as well um one inclusive activist that i'm a big fan of he is israeli um but his name is rudy rockman and he he is like doing grassroots work to bring Palestinians and Israelis and Jewish activists and Palestinian activists together to actually hear each other and talk to each other and to understand that neither, like no one's going anywhere um, and fueling the flames of hate is only going to extend and create more conflict, um, which I I think is really the key to what's going on. And, and his point of view too is actually, he is also anti um, U- USA to Israel um, and I think, in his point of view is that, you know, the, while the Middle East is, or Israel is dependent on the U.S. for weapons, right, that creates, um, that's business for the U.S. And as long as Western powers profit over conflict, um, those conflicts will continue happening. Um, and I pretty much agree with that. And I think probably most people would as well. I mean, most
3: um, of the world would, like, mm-hmm. you, there's so many things, like, if you follow the trail of who's making money off mm-hmm. of it it's really disgusting you know Mm -hmm. that it's this death and destruction is what keeps some economies Mm -hmm. going Mm -hmm. um and not enough people recognize that
1: yeah absolutely so um yeah so i I don't disagree i think with with rashida talib's like sentiments at its heart i just i don't think she's um i think her narrative is not inclusive but um but yeah no there's a lot of fucked up shit going on and um and I mean I think I think just like in the us, right like the government it, it like there are people in power that benefit from when things stay fucked up um, and that's the important thing to remember, and it's like, how do you fix that, right? Um, it's you know, this isn't like, yeah, <laughs> and I don't know, I don't have an answer either. I know like we talked about on the show um about how like boycotts end up hurting um like civilians, right? The people that need the most help end up getting hurt more. Um, So I don't really know. I don't really know, have an answer, but um, yeah, things definitely need to change.
3: Yeah, and I I think um, similar with issues like with police reform or when you talk about abolition, like there's a lot of people that they like to say, well, what do you think should happen as a way to sort of shut people up And I feel very strongly that if you're a human being, like you don't have to know on your own, like how to solve, like, or how to fix society to know that what's happening is not okay. Like that's very plain like to see. So yeah, like as always, um, we just had the story about qualified immunity. And then this is an ongoing story. Like we'll keep you updated on our Instagram our Facebook page um, and just keep your eyes open, like for all the stories that we talk about, like look for like other ways to get involved and connect.
0: And I think one of the missing elements that a lot of people forget uh, when we having these difficult conversations is that having conversation is healing. Having dialogue and doing research and exchange of ideas and breaking down misunderstanding is very powerful. Because most of us in the Western world don't have, um, haven't had exposure uh, to the history unless we uh, expose ourselves. So don't be afraid, you know, to have these conversations, you know, whether it's between a Jewish person, a Palestinian person, a black person, a white person, a a blue and purple. It it means, and I, I mean that sincerely, because at the end of the day, People run from this kind of conversation, right? It's like, oh, I don't want to offend anybody. Listen, you're offending yourself by being ignorant. So challenge yourself and challenge the people in your life to engage in these dialogues because this is what is breaking down barriers. When we don't talk about this shit, then we we walk around ill-informed, believe in social media and believe in news outlets that have you know specific initiatives in mind. It takes the, the power of engagement to really change what people think about each other. And at the end of the day, all that's left is humanity. So whether you you are afraid of the conversation, you feel like you know more than the next, just open yourself to have dialogue and challenge people to be engaged with you. Because whether you agree or not, that is healing just to have a conversation about something that you may think is taboo and I think is humanity. All right. I guess it's time for our next music break. The next track is a dope jazz track. It's called To Never Forget the Source and it's by a group called Sons of Kemet. We'll be right back. The little bit of the little bit of the little bit of the
4: little bit of the 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 little bit of
0: Welcome back to Objections to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our international news
1: segment, Emily, you're up to play. All right. Um, So this is an intense one, just as a warning to the listener. Um, It's something that's been going on for a little bit of a while, but we haven't had a chance to talk about it on the show yet. And it's the current COVID situation in India. Um, So I'll be using multiple resources for this story, but I'm starting with a New York Times update from May 19th. Uh, titled, COVID News, India Reports Highest Daily Death Toll of Any Country. The article explains, quote, India recorded 4,529 COVID-19 deaths on Tuesday, the pandemic's highest single known daily death toll in any country so far, the authorities said on Wednesday, as the virus spread into the country's vast hinterlands. The previous uh, previous deadliest day for a single country was recorded in the United States in January when 4,468 people died. Many experts believe the true number of deaths and infections in India, uh, a country of 1.4 billion people, is even higher, and evidence has emerged across the country of large numbers of people dying from COVID who have not been officially counted. India reported 267,000 new cases on Tuesday, pushing the official case tally past 25 million, with more than 280,000 deaths. While infections seem to be slowing down in some of India's urban centers, including New Delhi and Mumbai, the virus is spreading in the countryside. Testing there is limited. The medical infrastructure is woefully underfunded and overwhelmed, and some leaders have been trying to downplay the damage, sometimes even criminalizing cries for help. Um, So, an April 14th New York Times article by Jeffrey Gettleman, um, Suhasini Raj, and Samir Yasser give some background on some things that have led to this this situation in India. Um, Quote, cities in India are once again locking down to fight COVID-19, and workers are once again pouring out and heading back home to rural areas, which health experts fear could accelerate the spread of the virus and devastate poorly equipped villages as it did last time. Thousands are fleeing hotspots in cities as India hits another record with more than 200,000 daily new infections reported on Thursday. Bus stations are packed. Crowds are growing at railway stations. And in at least some of their destinations, according to local officials and migrants who have already made the journey, they are arriving in places hardly ready to test arrivals and quarantine the sick. Um, Also, quote, India risked repeating the traumatic mass movement that occurred last year after it enforced one of the world's toughest national lockdowns, eliminating millions of jobs virtually overnight. That lockdown fueled the most disruptive migration across the Indian subcontinent since it was split in two between India and Pakistan in 1947. Tens of millions of lowly paid migrant workers and their families fled cities by train, bus, cargo truck, bicycle, even by blistered feet to reach home villages hundreds of miles away. Where the cost of living was cheaper and they could help and be helped by loved ones. Hundreds died on the sweltering highways. Even more died back home. The migration also played a significant role in spreading the virus, as local officials in remote districts reported that they were swamped with the sick. This time, the Indian government has not locked down the whole country, but India's cities are increasingly, increasingly enforcing lockdown-like restrictions, meaning the tide of migrant workers leaving will most likely get worse. The authorities are reluctant to use the word lockdown, like shouting fire in a crowded theater, but they are tightening up. Uh, And the central government in India, led by Prime Minister Narendra Modi, is, quote, sending mixed messages. Uh, Quote, this time, even as he asked people to be careful and maintain social distancing, Mr. Modi is holding huge political rallies in states where his party is competing in elections. His party is asking people to gather by the thousands. Um, So as of uh, today's recording, which is May 20th, um, the New York Times vaccination tracker reports that only 3% of India's population is fully vaccinated against COVID as compared to 38% of Americans. Um, And I'm going to leave you with some final notes. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm going to leave you with some final notes from a very intense May 19th article from The Guardian uh, by Hannah Ellis-Peterson and Saurabh Sharma Ghazipur. Uh, It's titled, quote, stench of death pervades rural India as Ganges swells with COVID victims. Um, Quote, India's official death toll from the coronavirus pandemic may be just over a quarter of a million, but experts believe the real figure to be up to five times higher. And the bodies that have begun washing up in India's holiest river have become haunting representations of the uncounted COVID dead. Uh, Quote, there is, however, no official record of the number of bodies that have been found over the past two weeks in the stretch of the Ganges that flows through the poor rural states of Uttar Pradesh or Bihar, um, or buried in shallow sandy graves along the riverbank in Uttar Pradesh. Locals and journalists who have counted put the figure at more than 2,000. In the Uttar Pradesh village of Gamar, Raju Chaudhary, 15, who works on the fishing boats, said recently he had seen around 50 bodies a day washing up over many days. There is no way to know if all were victim, if all were infected with coronavirus, though the government has accepted some are COVID victims. Uh, it is widely believed that as the vicious COVID second wave has ripped through the poor rural communities of Uttar Pradesh, leaving death in its wake, stigma around the virus and the high cost of firewood for cremation meant many families had instead resorted to a custom a tradition in some villages of immersing the shrouded bodies into the holy waters of the Ganges. Others have buried them on the sandy beat banks. Uh, Quote, the toll of the pandemic on the rural villages of India, uh, home to 65% of the population and where basic healthcare infrastructure is lacking or absent will probably never be known. Um, So yeah, this is, it's really sad and, and scary what's happening right now. Um, if you want to help, there are a number of organizations you could donate to. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I think um, doing it's, it's imp- an important issue for me is doing the research of where you give your money to because, um, you know, just because someone says they're going to do something with your money doesn't mean that they actually are. Um, so the New York Times on May 12th published a, an article on, called How to Help India Amid the COVID Crisis, and the article itself notes, "Quote: Before giving money to any organization, make sure you feel comfortable with it." In the United States, sites uh, like GuideStar and Charity Navigator grade nonprofits on their effectiveness and financial health. Um, so, I just I just wanted to note that because um, I think it's important to remember. Um, so, here I'm going to give a, a short list of some of the organizations that the New York Times um, listed. I have not vetted any of these personally, but I just picked a few. Um, So there are UN, United Nations agencies like UNICEF and the World Health Organization. Um, They're delivering protective equipment kits, oxygen concentrators, um, testing systems, um, and other things that India's um, healthcare workers on the front lines really need. Um, Care India um, says it has, a quote says it has supplied hospitals and frontline workers in India with more than 39,000 PPE kits, along with masks and other supplies. Um, And then there's a few that are actually based in India that the Times lists, which um, I definitely wanted to highlight. Uh, Quote, the Indian Red Cross Society has staff and volunteers running blood drives, delivering aid and medical supplies, along with providing other essential services across the country. Um, There's the Youth Feed India and Helping Hands Charitable Trust that are delivering ration kits to um, vulnerable residents of Mumbai. And these kits have staples that they need like rice and dal, Um, They feed a family of four for 15 days, and then Oxygen for India, um, which delivers medical oxygen um, to patients in seven Indian cities for free, and it was founded um, by an economist and epidemiologist that directs the Center for Disease Dynamics, Economics and Policy, um, which is a research um, outfit organization based in uh, DC. I'm sorry, in Washington and New Delhi. So. Yeah, there's a bunch of resources out there um, for people who, you know, have the ability um, and, you know, want to to help out. But, yeah, it's pretty bad over there for sure. The images, I know someone who is
3: there now who is Indian, um, and unfortunately mm-hmm. he lost his father oh, so sorry. and also had um, COVID himself. I believe he's recovered now, but it's really been – seeing the images out of what's happening Mm -hmm. like people having to burn bodies Mm -hmm. like people in tears like it's very it's hard to even fathom like that intensity like you see people like begging you know because there's not enough supplies like Mm -hmm. there's not enough oxygen it's it's so mind-blowingly sad Mm mm-hmm yeah. yeah, I know that I had reported on the religious festival
0: that happens in India every year, which is normally a three month duration, where people start migrating to India in January, and the festival normally begins like late March, beginning of April. Um, in that previous report, I did note that they, the government did not have any COVID restrictions. They had the cases, the case number of in India was not as exasperated as it is right now when the festival began. But I do honestly believe this is a religious festival. I mean, if you are a Hindu, going to the Ganges River is a healing art, is something you do as a pilgrimage and, and who would not go um, in a time when everyone is going through so much pain and death. And, you know, so I understand the need for that sanctuary. However, I, I, great, it's obvious that this pilgrimage from people from all over the world has definitely uh impacted the swell of COVID happening there. But I just wanna, you know, while I'm definitely feeling for for the Indian community right now, I just wanna bring some highlight to the fact that three percent of their population has received uh vaccine. And it just it just really goes to show that when capitalism is involved in humanity, it's fucked up. You know what I'm saying? Cause it's it's just so sad that the way that the vaccine was rolled out with patents being protected for whatever fucking reasons they were, this is, an, is, is a direct reflection of the resources not being divided amongst the world. And it sucks because, you know, this is a problem that I feel like, while it may not have been completely alleviated, it could have been different. It clearly could have been different. It could be different right now if there were measures taken that were directly to benefit the people of India. And I just, you know, I just want to highlight that because it's something that it's like, oh my God, this is so sad. Why is this happening? Well, it's a lot of layered information here. You know, from what I said at the beginning, a lot of people going there in a pilgrimage for this festival, but also the distribution of wealth, the distribution of vaccines and resources is just not evil. It's not equal. And it's still not, even in the midst of this triumph right now, what is really being done for this? What is, who's really helping and how drastic is this situation on the world stage? Um, I'm glad that you brought it to light on the show. And I just, I just want to, you know, make sure we are aware that this is what happens. This is how the, the, the wealth trickles down. And this is how large masses of people disappear on the world stage because of capitalism and the rules of engagement around things that can really change the tide
3: yeah so well i'll put the link again our social media pages are facebook.com forward slash objection radio free bk um, i'll be sure to put up the links to ways that you can help um, the people of India right now, because, you know, it's a global pandemic and we're in this together. Like the world has to be able to conquer this. It can't be done one country at a time. So mm-hmm. whatever we can do to support one another, not just within our communities, but outside of them as well, we have to do it if we really want this to be behind us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we're really coming out of it now in the U S and, but just remember like that is, you know, we, that is not the whole world, um, by, by any means. Um, so just remember that.
0: Absolutely. And then finally, Emily, you're back up on the docket. Please tell us about these wonderful elephants.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, that was my, my world story was pretty dark and this one is lighthearted. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to fix the world, but, um, you know, we just like to end on a happy note. So, um, uh, so this is a story that comes from a May 13th, May 13th Washington post article by Kathy free titled former circus elephants just arrived at a new sanctuary. They are swimming and grazing on fruit buffets. Um, which is a very cute title so the article explains quote for about two decades elephants that performed with the ringling brothers and barnum and bailey circus were sent to a reserve in central florida when they became too old to balance on two legs and parade around arenas doing tricks and dancing for large crowds animal rights groups have long called the breeding farm and retirement refuge problematic it is owned by the parent group of the now closed circus And there have been reports of elephants being chained in concrete enclosures and some having foot and leg problems. But in recent weeks, the former circus elephants have begun moving to a 135-acre sanctuary, sanctuary, uh, one that is not affiliated with the circus uh, uh, that for years was accused of mistreating and abusing the gentle giants. Uh, Three weeks after being let loose in the White Oak Conservation Center in Yulee, Florida, The first group of elephants has been exploring the new surroundings, and staff members say they don't see some of them for days at a time. When they do spy the large animals, they say they are swimming in the deep end of a pond or having a dust bath, followed by a nap in the shade. Uh, They also snack on watermelon and banana buffets just very cute. Um, after what? yeah, after 145 years, all of the Ringling brothers elephants were retired in 2016. Um, and that is thanks to public pushback against their forced performances. Um, bands on bull hooks have also sprung up across the U S. Um, I actually learned about those while I was reading that book, water for elephants. Um, there are these awful things that are like fire pokers and they're used for training elephants. So those are fucked up too. Um, a May 17th Good News Network article about the same story explains, quote, the four-square-mile refuge is the best scenario for these elephants because they've been raised in captivity and are not equipped to survive in the wild. Um, so elephants are totally awesome animals with incredible memories and family structures, and they even recognize death. Um, according to something from Nova on PBS, quote, they almost always react to a dead elephant's remains. Occasionally, they react to a human's. Uh, The remains or bones of other species they ignore. Um, So these these elephants have incredible, like, empathy and social structures, and um, they absolutely deserve to be living their best lives out free and wild. Um, And I'm happy to hear that some of them are getting the opportunity to do that.
3: Yeah, good for them. Like, I think that's the last thing I ever saw in an IMAX. Um, It was a documentary about elephants with my dad mm-hmm. and they're so they are they're so fascinating and mm-hmm. it's really unfortunate like when you see how they're like when you see them in captivity like this mm-hmm. or any big wild animal that you know should be out roaming free so i'm mm-hmm. I'm happy that they're all yeah. eating their watermelon and living yeah. their living <laughs> their little life
1: you know it's like sea world like it's just so awful what we do to um, you know, big, beautiful animals.
0: Well, I love elephants. I grew up with them all over the house. My mother was a huge advocate, specifically that elephants. That was
3: a very loaded, like, what? Like, elephants everywhere? <laughs> but I'm like, oh, you mean, like, trinkets?
0: Yes, trinket statues, okay. pictures. Okay, wherever we can find it. I wish, right? I never actually... Well, yeah, I, I actually did see real elephants once when I went to South Africa. However... Um, I grew up with them all over my house and as a sign of um, just good luck and good fortune. And my mother was a huge advocate of elephants with their trunk up because they smile. <laughs> and it's, it's cute to see such a big animal smile, you know. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, let's get them free, damn it. Elephants deserve to, to be free too. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that uh, story, Emily. And thank you, everyone, for listening so much to this week's Objection to the Rule. Uh, You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, on Spotify, or anywhere where you get your podcasts. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to play you out with our final track of the day, which is titled Electric, and it comes from Katy Perry. We'll see you next week.
3: Bye. Goodbye. Have a good week. Bye.
4: one way A big st-